Hello, Claire Tonti here. Welcome to Taunts, a podcast about feeling all of it. Were you a weird kid? Did you love things a bit too much? Ask too many questions? Feel like a fish out of water at school? Were you lonely or awkward or felt out of place in your own skin? Well, that was me. I've always felt like I was too much, too curious. Cue the eye rolls when I asked another question in class. Does she really need to have her hand up again? We all want to go and eat our lunch. Too big when it came to boys and being asked out on dates. Too loud, too emotional, too weird, too much, too many words, too different, too many things to make and do and say and be. Well, my guest today is an example of what happens when you let that all pour out, don't hide your light and are unafraid to give yourself permission to be fully who you were meant to be. This episode of Taunts is a wide-reaching, lovely conversation with the force of nature that is Alice Dazlovsky, or Alice in Frames as she is known around the traps. Alice is a former teacher who is also a cook, a writer, a broadcaster, and a speaker who is also deeply passionate about vegetables. She is a vigilante and just an all-round creative wonder who loves nothing more than to inspire others to learn about food and where it comes from. You might recognize her from MasterChef or from the ABC where she regularly presents. You might have even seen her interviewing Nigella Lawson among many other people in the food industry, particularly in Australia. I have loved Alice's writing and her recipes for years and I've always wanted to sit down with her and ask about all the things she makes and why she does what she does. Alice is also a mum to a little human called Hazel and the story of her Jewish family's immigration from Georgia to Australia is one of triumph and heartbreak and grit. It was a delight to sit down on a sunny afternoon in lockdown and discover a kindred spirit. The weird nerdy kid that lives inside my head and my heart was full to the brim with joy for this vegetable loving woman and what she creates. Her message is clear. Be you and don't let anyone tell you differently. And maybe some magic things will happen. Give yourself permission. Lean into what you love and for goodness sake, eat your vegetables. Here she is, Alice in Frames. I have been a massive fan of yours for a long time and I used to be a primary school teacher as well. So I know the, the ropes about, you know, transitioning and doing all of that kind of thing. And I wanted to just start by asking you about what you eat and when. So I'm a big food person. What do you eat when you're having like a really blah day, like a can't be bothered, the sky's really gloomy, you're just feeling gross? What, what would you eat? I would eat um, a big bowl of toasted sunflower seeds with the shell on and I would, um, it's meditative for me to just like, um, hum, like a bird. And, um, I don't just do it on gloomy days cause I've actually got a, um, I don't know if you can see the calluses on my fingers, but I've got calluses from picking the seeds. It's just, it takes me back. My grandpa taught me how to toast the seeds and it's a very Georgian thing to eat sunflower seeds. So I'm sure lots of people would say chocolate or, you know, indulgent things, but that to me is like great good time. That'll get you going. That'll get me going. <laughs> That'll get you going every yeah. time. Yeah. And if I'm gloomy, I'm probably reading. So I'll be like book in front, seeds, <laughs> delish. Just like yum, yum, yum. Yeah. What would you eat when there is something to be celebrated? When Ooh. you just, something amazing happened, you've launched a book, oh. I don't know, Christ, oh, whatever, something to be celebrated. What oh. We'd go out. Um, we'd go to one of our favourite restaurants in town um, and we would celebrate. There was one restaurant in particular that sadly closed, but that's where we would we have celebrated so many occasions for the family, Lau's Family Kitchen. 
in St Kilda, mm. um, the most amazing Cantonese. They closed sort of late, um, so mid last year, and I miss them very much. So maybe what I still make, I still make Lao's veg to remember what that was like. Gilbert took me into the kitchen and showed me how they make their famous Lao's veg. So now, yeah, that's my celebratory marker. Celebratory. Yeah. What? So did they close because of the pandemic? No. So it was just timing. Um, I think Gilbert is sort of in his late 70s and the lease was up and they just decided, you know what, let's call it. So, and I'm still in touch with the the fam, so they're doing well. Yeah. That's really good. Mm. That's something that comes across with your work is your huge heart and your huge ability to bring so many foodies together in so many different ways. Where does that come from? I've just always been a people person and it probably does come from some level of sublimation of like feeling like an outsider at some point in my life. And so I overcompensate now by bringing everybody in with me. Um, but I think it's definitely one of my superpowers to make friends, mm. collect interesting people and introduce them to each other as well because I think that's probably one of the ways that I, my friend John would describe it as adding value. It's the way that I add value to people's lives is by introducing them to each other, valuable people to each other. Mm. Do you, why did you feel like an outsider? I, um, when I was little, we were in Georgia and my, uh, you know, I was little slight of frame. And I think there was a level of um, internalising of the anti-Semitism within the country and within the Soviet Union um, that my parents definitely experienced as part of the reason why we left. Uh, but also when we came to Australia, I didn't speak the language. So I went into primary school with a bowl cut and, you know, a thick Russian accent. <laughs> And really, it was a very steep learning curve. And it didn't take me long. Like, I think I've always really been an extrovert and always wanted to, to you know, make friends. But I definitely found that first, those first few years hard. Mm. What mm. was so hard in that transition from the, like, from a cultural perspective? Yeah, it was the culture. It was a total culture shock. I think we, because we always, you know, in Georgia, there's a real sense of hospitality and everybody being welcome to the table and my parents brought that with them here and they still they're academics and they would still host parties you know barbecues for all of their students uh, from all over the world um, Georgian hospitality but I think the Australian especially in the 90s you know there is kind of a I wouldn't call it I would call it a an othering particularly if they hear an accent or if you seem different and because we came here with very little you know, I was wearing hand-me-downs. I just never, I was just never very cool. Like I wasn't cool at school school, but I was very cool at Russian school. So that made me feel better. Like at Russian school and at my rhythmic gymnastics classes, I was extremely cool, like queen bee cool. But at school, I was like geeky, bookish, awkward. Mm. <laughs> I love it. The awkward yeah. people are the All best. Though. Never peak in high school. I, I think that would be the biggest favour in my life because if I was cool at school, then I would be ruining, you know, growing up. But I love it. I look back and I'm just like, thank you. <laughs> thank, you for, oh, thank you for pushing me. Yeah, you know, I wore glasses from grade five. I remember I remembered this the other day and it really encapsulates a boy said to me, it would have been year 10, and he said, Alice, you would be so much hotter if you weren't so annoying. You know, isn't that a year, such a year 10 thing? And it's just like, and I really, that cut me up. And now it's just like, 
Jokes on you. You can't you can't do an expression on a podcast, but it's just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why did he say you were annoying? Do you think? Where was the what was the root of that? I think the annoyingness um, from a school perspective is you know if you're challenging the norms or if you're poking your head above, um, or if you're just different or unusual or have different ideas. And I was definitely not the quietest. You know, I was never a shy retiring wallflower. Yeah, I was Queen Bee on Sundays, so why should I not be that? I literally, I was the same person in both schools, but in one school it was like, and in the other school it was like, no. Wow. I found my diaries. I had journals from like we had a a club after school on Tuesdays and Thursdays called the Discovery Club, Um, and it was we used to do like science experiments and go on excursions. And um, and my journals were so angsty. They were so like. Why and it's like, oh man, if I could just go back and you know, what would I change? What would I say? I just say it now. I just say it to to any kid that I talk to now and just say, like, what makes you different and annoying is actually what will make you stand out and be your best self and and shine. Mm. Yeah. Is that your curiosity and enthusiasm and extroversion? Yes. Is that what it was that made yes. you the queen bee? Probably, yeah, on the week, on on Sundays. But, yeah, my enthusiasm and exuberance was definitely seen as something that was annoying and um, there was a quota. And actually I think it's actually about finding your tribe because I don't think that my tribe was at my day school. And I know that from even from when I was on MasterChef because they cast you to be different to everybody else. And I got that same feeling of being back at school and, like, why am I so different and do I need to – dim my light because it's annoying for other people and it's just like no actually because I have weeded out people in my day-to-day life that make me feel that way but it's just now I'm thrust in this house with you for six months. <laughs> yeah but that would have been so tricky. Oh what, yeah. Did you did you find your feet eventually or you just were determinedly Al- Alice and kept going I think no I um I think there was a point at which a producer pulled me aside and said hey listen you are um like whatever's going on you need to just be you like be the full expression of you because that's why you've been cast and then in that challenge I just smashed the shiitake out of that the next kind of group challenge which was essentially just me holding the attention of a room for hours because the food wasn't coming but I think if I hadn't had that person pull me aside and tell me that I was definitely feeling like I was going back into my you know, teenage self-doubt, awkward self. Yes. So, you know, and I actually think the the experience has been really, has been very life-affirming in the sense that um, it reminded me (laughs) that letting myself give other people the opportunity to tell me what I am or how valuable I am or how annoying I am, any of those things, whatever label they want to put on me, um, I love this. Actually, it was a, a quote from Kylie on RuPaul's Drag Race, um, All-Stars 6. She said, <laughs> she said um, it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. And I think that is like the amount of times that I wish someone had told me that over the years. But now that I know it, it's just like no no tweet, no <laughs> aside, no snarky side eye is going to dim my light ever again. Do you think that has something to do with being a girl, being a woman and being loud? Oh, 100%. Yes, definitely. Um, I think that it's it's definitely a gender thing. In fact, I was just talking to some Year 12 girls this morning, uh, which I occasionally do. I did like a little you know, Zoom sesh for them. 
And I just said to them, we don't put ourselves forward enough um, and we apologise for our presence just, Mm. you know, if not out loud, just in some of the self-talk. But actually, and and I've done work with a a breath coach to to work my way through it, Um, and one of the things that we worked on is that she taught me to think about the fact that it's not just me on stage, it's actually all the people that back me, you know, and they're all behind me. And that's sometimes, depending on how big the performance is and how much I need to set my mind, you know, straight, how how many butterflies are flying about in my tummy, I'll just tell myself that and it's like whoosh. And it's a different resonance that you find in your voice when you're coming from that place of self-confidence and, and you know, the awareness of the people backing you. Mm. Is there is there a way you talk to yourself in that moment? <laughs> you know, when you're going to do something big and scary like that. Yes, um, it's another. So it was years and years ago. I was hosting the opening um, media night for Gourmet Escape, and it was up on stage with me. It was Dominic Crenn, who was the top female chef in the world at the time, Nigella Lawson, Rick Stein, and I was going to host the panel. And a friend of mine, Amanda, said you um because she said you know are you nervous and I said yeah you know it's not nerves it's just like there's like a like you know it's a you you harness it and you you pull it pull it out as positive energy but I said yeah you know I'm definitely feeling a little bit out of my depth and she said you were born for this this is what you do and I tell myself that I'm like this is my jam there is actually nobody that can do what I do in the way that I do it so I'm gonna you know dial it up and the more that I do it, um, I remember one time in particular when I walked out. <laughs> so uh, I was hosting Nigella at Hamer Hall, so like two and a half thousand people, right? I was eight months pregnant. Yeah. So, <laughs> and we'd done the first half, and then there was intermission, and then we came back out. She she'd just eaten my hummus with carrot sticks um, in the intermission, and said it was delicious. And um, I know, I know, and I walked out. And and she was walking up behind me and I felt really at home. Like I felt like I was going to do it, like we were going to do a pas de deux on stage and it really just felt like I was floating, she was floating and there was nothing, there was no self-doubt whatsoever. And I I don't know necessarily what I was telling myself or what I was thinking, but it just felt very comfortable. And it helps that Hamer Hall was also the place where we used to perform every year for the you know, for for some concerts within the community. So, you know, I knew the backstage, I knew that stage, I knew the feeling of being on those boards. And it was like, I was like, I was here to help her. I guess that kind of is, is part of the reason that I'm comfortable doing it because it's not about me. It's about bringing out the best in who I'm hosting most of the time. Mm-hmm. Is Is it scary to meet someone like Nigella who you would really respect and admire, or is it just energizing. It depends on the person. It depends on the person and their own energy. So it's like what what they're projecting. And most of my experience has been that people at that level are the nicest, humblest, most grateful sort of, you know, people to meet you and for you to be normal with them. Because it's really awkward when somebody meets you and they're sort of (laughs) and hey, I can empathize because that's happened to me a few times, but not with food people. It happens to me with other kind of celebrity type people that I meet when I haven't, you know, been through my little mindset exercise, which I, you just have to remind yourself, you know, when you go to a writer's festival, you'll meet the top authors in the world and they're all 
such interesting, fun people because if they weren't, they wouldn't be writing these amazing books. So it's exactly the same. If someone's at the top of their game, they've done something. They're not just like famous for the sake of being famous. And the fame is a byproduct of that um, talent that they have. So it's about acknowledging that you recognize that they're very good at what they do, but also what else, you know, what are they interested in? The best thing to do is actually to talk to their partner because their partner's off to the side, like, you know, just hanging out. Just hanging out. Watching. And if they're yeah. if they've chosen that person, that person is probably going to be just as interesting, if not more so, and grateful that you've, you know, taken the time to get to know them as well. Mm. Yeah. And then you come back in and now that you're in with the person, with the partner, then you're like, oh, okay. So this is a this is someone that I could meet on that level instead of like a surface level. Yeah, like a sort of fan yes. kind of relationship totally. and then make them feel uncomfortable and all of those things. Well, yeah, correct. What do you believe about energy and that kind of timing and serendipity kind of stuff? What do you where, think where I believe, you Claire? That? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> That's what I'm asking you. I, I can already tell. You're yeah. one of my people. I yeah, can yeah, tell, yeah. but I'm yeah. I'm very woo-woo, very like beyond woo-woo um, and I'm yes, all about yes. it. Yeah, so actually um, <laughs> my um, I was at the ABC studios and there were like a bunch of books available and you can just pick like you know because they're kind of the off-cut books that no one's chosen and I found the one that's like buy a psychic <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and I definitely I believe in energy I believe in manifestation and spirit and karma um, and I just believe in putting out positive vibes and you get what you you know you get in what you put out big time yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that in terms of the work, like the the work, the amount of work you do, the how hard you work, or is that, or is it both? Is it also sort of emotional energy and what you give, you then receive? That, and it's the intention behind it. So you can't lead with ego, even if it's a project where it's um, you're putting your whole heart into it and you know that you're the best at it. You have to come from a place of wanting to share something and bring goodness into the world right you can't be like look how good I am it's more like look how good this is like let's enjoy it together yeah and I think that and I think there's a different attachment to that as well so you know in terms of because it's the project that you're proud of you don't take it as personally if it's not as successful as you think or you by the same token if it's more successful than you expected you don't let it go to your head and and you know knock you off course Mm. Have there been times where you've been knocked off course? Oh, yeah, plenty. A couple of times in particular when I um, was approached to create Phenomenon, which is the digital toolkit for teachers, which you would know being a former primary school teacher, I was the food editor at, you know, the life, at a top lifestyle, Glossy. I had a really clear career trajectory within the kind of restaurant hospo world. I'd built up a lot of gravitas I suppose and I could see a really clear path but when that came my way because that had been my mission from the get-go before MasterChef I thought oh this is it this this is what spirit is telling me I'm supposed to do so I'm gonna get rid of all the distraction I'm gonna say no to everything I'm gonna leave my role as food editor I handed it off to my good friend Sophia and um and I'm just gonna focus on phenomenon and I did that for 18 months and when the project launched like and I was you know we, it really took everything. When I say we, my husband, Nick, who was an osteo, we just spent a bunch of dosh on building up his clinic. He re- resigned, like retired his, 
mitts <laughs> and became yeah. a project manager <laughs> for Phenomenon. So everything went into this project and then we launched it. And because it's government and industry funded, we can't put any money into promoting it. And so it was like crickets, crickets. And and because it was like such a, it was our baby, it was our firstborn and we were devastated and I really we had to both do a lot of work and soul searching to say like why is this like why does this hurt so much and what can I do to make this feel less bad (laughs) because it felt really shitty um but I think over time the thing that's kind of mitigated the shittiness is we've continued to work on phenomenon but it taught me never to put all of my eggs in the same basket and actually I had a fantastic conversation with a grower um, a lettuce grower who said, Alice, why are you doing, like, why are you doing all this back room stuff? Like, why do you think you are going to impact more people and affect more change doing what it is that you were born to do, which is front of camera and, you know, within that kind of sphere and helping lead the team, but not necessarily being in the hole. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that, I've then, you know, that, that, that was very helpful for me because it's made it clearer how I can continue to agitate and, and where. Um, but it was, you know, I see yeah. everything as a learning, like none, even at our biggest failures. And at one point we thought we'd have to sell our flat to finish the project. <laughs> it was like, oh my God. It was, I know. It was, <laughs> and my mum was like, don't do that. <laughs> so glad I listened to her. No, and then what, you know, I love how you're like, it just felt a bit shitty that it didn't go, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> it was bad. So, but, but I think also it kind of, we also had to ask ourselves, what is the universe telling us? And I think part of the reason why we had Hazel is because we finished this project, which was our baby, and we put it out into the world and we realized actually it's not our baby at all. It's like, and no one sees it. And so we were <laughs> like, well, we might as well just have a, have a baby. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> next minute. We've got one and she's ours and she's great. She's a delight. <laughs> That's good. You can tell her when she's older that the yes. reason that she came into the world is because the other baby didn't quite launch. Oh. So we thought, but, you know, yeah, she, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you exactly wow. why else we had it. Um, we had it. Um, the, the other reason why we decided actually it's probably time. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a very ambitious person and I know that if I, if we were going to have a child, it was going to be, we needed to make sure that we could afford the energy and not just kind of have her as an afterthought. We, we really wanted to be intentional with the way that we parented. So that's why we held off because it was like, well, you know, we'll wait till this happens or this happens, but it was just like, you know what, let's just not wait. And the tipping point was a conversation with Ronnie Khan. I hosted like a Q&A with her for her film Food Fighter and we went out to Movita afterwards for a, a snack and I said, Ronnie, when do you, like, when do you think's the right time? Like I know because she's very much the same, you know, she's always been very purpose-driven. And um, I said, when do you think that would be a good time to have a kid? And she said, never, never, like it's never a good good time, so just go <laughs> and do it. Um, and, I, and I literally went home and told Nick and, you know, uh <laughs> Next minute. And um, up the oat. Up yeah, the and, uh, yeah. And mum, so mum's always been a fan of Ronnie Khan's, but I think now she's like an even bigger fan. <laughs> now she can be grandma to the nut. <laughs> oh, that, that is so beautiful. How have you navigated that? Being ambitious, being mm. out there, doing so many things, writing books, working together um, in a partnership with yeah. your partner. Mm-hmm. 
How does that work when you throw a nut into the mix for a baby? Yeah. Um, well, I actually think phenomenon because we'd had this, you know, earlier child in inverted commas, we already knew how we work together and we know what our strengths are and we support each other and we we never second guess our decisions. We always make those decisions together. And the best advice that we give, I gave it this morning, you know, to these year 12 girls, which the teacher, I don't know how she took it, but I said, if you are ambitious, you need to marry well, you know, or choose your partner well, because, and I don't mean like, you know, find someone with coin. I mean, find someone who's going to support your ambition and who's going to back you all the way. And that's Nick. You know, he is a hundred percent. Um, when we were, even when we were first dating, he was like, you are, and like, he wasn't glamoring me, but he said, I believe you're destined for, you know, really great things. And, you know, I'm there with you all the way. And he really truly has been, even when I went on MasterChef, you know, he was sending me care packages and, um, we were writing letters to each other. Like it was the 18th century. It was very, it was all, and we were like, that was like early days. So, um, you know, he's really dreamy. And if I could, clone him I definitely would and he's so during especially when I was writing when I was writing in praise of veg and I'm writing a a new book at the moment he's doing the same slightly different so when in praise of veg was being written Hazel was like a newborn so she was kind of like four months five months six months so he could take her out all day and you know bring her back to to feed and nap and whatever and I'd be writing the book this time she's a toddler and so he brings her back and she's she's you know (laughs) got more energy so they're spending a lot of time (laughs) outside a toddler human yeah they're spending a lot of time outside a lot of time with each other and they've got a really fantastic bond but yeah like I don't I think that stuff around oh women just have you know a different instinct with their children and that's why they need to spend more time you know like the lets the dad off the hook sort of thing that stuff's bullshit like honestly he is just as intuitive as I am with her and if not more so because he's just spent the time with her and yes we are so privileged to be able to afford that and we make sacrifices within our lifestyle in order to be able to, at the moment, be, you know, sole income hustle. And that, I guess that pushes me as well because I mm. want to keep that lifestyle going. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> God, how do you do that day to day? What does your day look like? Generally? Different days, different days. So most days um, we'll get up uh, <laughs> and Nick will take her first thing because we're still co-sleeping. So like I'm up a lot. I'm like night parenting and he'll day parent. So he'll take her and I'll either do yoga or I'll exercise. And at the moment, because I'm on deadline, I've literally got to book you in a month and a half. I sit down and I write um, because my morning is when I'm most creative. And then we do our, you know, do our thing. And then really it's about finding moments of creativity throughout the day. Um, other days I might be heading into town cause I'm on the radio or whatever that looks like. So it really, and particularly before lockdown, our life, you couldn't even, I couldn't even answer that question cause every day was just so different. Um, but that's part of what I love. Mm-hmm. That's what I found really frustrating and incongruous with my personality with teaching is I'm not a schedule kind of gal, you know, like Nick does my mm-hmm. schedule because I genuinely, my mind palace does not function in like a Bop, 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 kind of way it's more like and then this oh my like, it's so good <laughs> to hear that. that yeah yeah I can't that's the exact reason I'm not a teacher either yeah. because I sometimes feel like my brain just can't do the same thing every day no. at the same time in the month yeah. and it's all there's so much going on yeah. yeah and here's the question right how many kids are like that 
within our conventional school system, like we're putting all these children into the same box and we're wondering why some are annoying or some are, you know, have so much potential and yet they are disruptive in class. It's just like they're bored. (laughs) Challenge them. Give them a project-based something. Don't, you know, don't expect them to be excited for maths every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m., you know, and have their boring recess. Yeah, what's that? (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's so true. And being able to play and yes. be creative and have that time to just be who you are. I know it's um I hated school for a lot of reasons mm. and I think one of them was that. Yeah. It just felt like I had so much to say and do and make and then we'd have to do this thing yeah. at this time yeah. and stick it in a book. And yeah. it just seemed really not, you know, in in line with who I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. Yeah. But you yeah. have mentioned a lot about purpose Mm. what is what is your purpose and what kind of drives you to hustle and be so ambitious and do the work that you do what is that purpose Uh, I'm still working that out um as a single sentence (laughs) but I think what I aim to do is to inspire people to connect with food with joy and reckless abandon and um and it's and food really I mean food for me is a vehicle it's really connecting with the world right um it's just that food is something that everybody needs to eat so um I guess it's a really great gateway to say hey I've got information that you need (laughs) that you might like that will add value to your life like make make you eat more delicious food but also while you're here you know, did you know that there is so much to learn about sustainability, about the environment, about um, culture, about connection, about history? And, you know, because I was humanities, English, that was my, they were my teaching methods, uh, secretly drama. I never taught drama though. <laughs> I didn't want to. I was like a secret drama teacher uh, because kids in sort of middle school think that drama's a bludge. I wanted like the serious drama theatre kids in year 11 and 12. That was me. Whew. seriously um yes so I think that that's kind of my purpose but also from the perspective of why kids I just think that kids are spongy and willing to learn and if we can get the kids interested as a family unit it's more likely that there will be engagement so you know or as a household so I think there's if we can con- condense that into a sentence then that's my purpose well, that sounds like, I think that was great. Thank I think you. you did really well. I mean, there's a good light, there's a good sort of thing you have on your website, actually, mm. about food being, let me read it. Yeah. Actually, it says, <laughs> like, rather than trying to butcher it. Mm. Um, so learning to understand food, the way it makes our bodies feel, how it connects to the world around us should be just as important as learning to read and write. Mm. And I couldn't agree more. I think it's it's vital, right, because it affects as we know now, our entire planet and the way that it, it functions, where does that come from? Is it is it from your Georgian heritage? Is that, do you think, where the root of your love of food has come from? Definitely. And I think that it's come from being in a household that valued food always. Most conversations with my parents centre on food in some way. <laughs> and when we travel, so um, I got to travel a lot with my parents growing up because they'd be kind of keynotes at, at, at conferences in, you know, all the way from Portugal to Thailand to um, where interesting places. Where did we go that was wild? 
Um, you know, we were in Italy, we were in France. We 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 really we got around Sweden. You know, the north, like the the north <laughs> northernmost, you know, parts of Sweden. Anyway, when we were there, we would always find interesting food experiences, and I didn't recognize this until much when I was much older. But um, when my dad is in a restaurant I used to be really annoyed by this but he asks heaps of questions of the waiters and I realized that's actually what I do I do that all the time like you know (laughs) tell me more about this dish or you know what's what's that you know like I'm really interested and it's part of actually what I do on stage as well when I'm hosting demos and stuff so yeah you definitely don't know what it is that you are imparting on your kids so (laughs) careful the things you say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for, for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pressure, isn't it, this yeah. parenting gig sometimes, yes. I think. So yeah. what were your parents like as people? So mm. I'm assuming mum's going to listen to this, so I will be a very careful person. <laughs> so my mother wrote her PhD really? with my brother as a toddler on her lap. Um, so that my mum is absolutely where I get my drive, but also where I got the reassurance to know that it was a possibility to do everything as well as being a, a parent. My mum was, has, there there were, there have been points in my parents' lives where they had to, you know, they had to uproot, they had to leave at the age of 36, like my age. My mum had to, you know, leave all her friends behind, leave all their stuff behind and come to Australia with four suitcases and $250. Like they didn't even get to, they didn't have enough money to get to Australia. They had enough to get to Singapore and then they thankfully one of their family friends or like a friend of a friend lent them the money to get to Australia like whoa Mm. right um so I guess they're risk takers why because in the Soviet Union you couldn't leave you couldn't take anything valuable like with you um when you left so they like we left as skilled migrants but we we still there was a level of um you know we were certainly we were emigrating we were migrating through push and pull factors because the unrest in Georgia was getting stronger. The anti-Semitism in Georgia was getting um, was getting out of control. My mum was passed over on a, for a position because of her Jewish surname. So it was just like we need to leave this country so that our children can have a better better life. Um, and they're just really hard workers. They don't have. I've never seen them. You know, go to bed before they'll, they'll be at their computers until like ten, eleven o'clock at night like chipping away. So mum retired last year and she's got eight PhD students that hadn't finished yet. So she's still supporting them to finish. Like that's not retired. <laughs> she's still, yeah. So they, I think they're, de- they're definitely purpose-driven as well. And they're not, um, yeah, they've just always, they're in computer science and kind of knowledge management data information. Like I had the internet before all the other kids, you know, um, very early adopter, we went to we were in New York and dad went to a phone shop to get a, a case for his phone and the guy was like sorry we don't have cases for phones like that anymore because like a real brick and dad's like do you mean this phone and he like flipped it open and it was a QWERTY keyboard like the first QWERTY keyboard Samsung and the guy was like oh no it was a Sony Ericsson he goes whoa show me that it was yeah so my parents are like uber geeks uber geeks and very I would say that they believe in me mum certainly believes in me um, implicitly and is probably very amused by my like <laughs> devil may care, feel the fear, but do it anyway attitude. Dad is more, um, he's always trying to encourage me to go and do my master's or PhD in gastronomy be- to be taken seriously. He's like, people won't listen to you unless you have 
the credentials and it's just like, I don't know, Dad, I feel like <laughs> I feel like people are listening to me anyway just for, through flying hours. But I think now with um, especially with the success of Impraise of Edge and um, with all my kind of media work and I think the point at which Dad realised that actually it was okay for me to have left teaching and this was, you know, a decade ago, um, is that people in the media now know how to pronounce his surname. So, so it's like, oh, okay, so she's she's making something of herself. Yeah, so, um, and, yeah, I think, and they've been through enormous trauma. Like mum saw, so my grandparents visited from Israel for a couple of weeks and just before they left, grandpa was crossing the road and um, he was hit by a car in front of mum, like he was crossing the road to get into the car and someone knocked him over on Inkerman Street and um, he was paralysed for, you know, and lived. they lived with us, my grandparents, for the next 15 years and mum was just, mum's very stoic because she's had to be. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Eighth Life and it's like one of the thickest books I've read in ages. It's like War and Peace but Georgia and the people in that book, like all of them have the worst time. All of them have grief and trauma and they just get on with it and I really think that that's my family just like generations of running because of like the reason we were in Georgia is because this is so heavy I'm sorry um so my great great right. it's so good okay oh, okay my great great grandparents left the Ukraine and Lithuania um and Russia to come to Georgia because of the pogroms so being persecuted for being Jewish and then we're in Georgia again being persecuted for being Jewish in the Soviet Union and then we come to Australia and we're not Jewish enough, you know, like, because it's a, like it's a, you know. So, again, it's always been that sort of fish out of water, living out of suitcases, just getting on with it, stoicism. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean, not Jewish enough? <laughs> um, what it means is that I think a lot of the um, Jewish community in Australia have been quite established. Like there was, particularly in the 90s, there were kind of second, third generation Jews um, that had been really comfortable. You know, they came here right after the war. They'd really established themselves and were quite affluent. And that's the sort of school that I went to. And coming as migrants from the Soviet Union where we were never allowed to be Jewish. And so we didn't know the customs and the traditions and some of the, you know, the stuff that's assumed knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what that meant. Um, and so I guess that compounded my outsiderness in my day school. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have to learn all of that as a family? Um, I think my parents sent me and my brother to that school because they wanted us to learn it because they didn't get to. So, um, you know, it was up to me to disseminate that knowledge back into the home, not necessarily so that they could keep to it. I'm always surprised actually. Um, sometimes mum will say, oh, you know, I'm fasting today or whatever. And I'll be like, really? <laughs> I don't know. I think now nowadays I treat my Judaism as a culture um, and a tradition more than, say, a religion. And that's the way that I think I'll be raising Hazy to understand her Jewishness as well. But when the community need someone like a go-to food person, they know who to call <laughs> and they call me. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, they call me. I would call you too if I were them. <laughs> Definitely. You are welcome. Uh, so that's a lot like a lot of sort of running and having that history of trauma yeah. in your family <laughs> and that like ambition and that work ethic and drive, how you, how do you sit with days where things get tough or there are big emotions or big mm. shocks or someone is passed away? 
How do you do that? Is it just a swallow it all, keep on going? Never. Are there Not anymore. Things that happen. No, no way. Um, and I think I'm the first generation that doesn't repress. And I think that's hopefully something that I've been teaching my mum because, yeah, you can't. You can't just keep pushing that stuff down because it's intergenerational. And, you you know, I said before, careful the things you say. Your kids will absorb that grief and trauma regardless of whether you talk about it or not and they'll see it as um, that silence says more than, than if you actually speak it through. And I've done a lot of work, you know. I, I have an amazing acupuncturist that I work with um, who's also um, of the community. So, you know, we work together, especially, you know, when I talked about that the failures around Phenomenon's first law, the failure to launch, yeah. um, I had so yeah. much heaviness in me, just so much weight and grief over the potential of that. But also I guess it was just like compounded grief that I had never dealt with with my family. And because a lot of the time, like I say she's my acupuncturist, but really like she's a, her between her and my breath coach, the two of them are witches who I just absolutely adore and we work together, you know, across different planes, depending. Sometimes I need physical stuff, sometimes it's just a chat. But when my grandma died, so my mum's mum, the one that had lived with us and helped to raise me, she was definitely the one that that didn't talk the most. She really kept everything bottled up. And you would, wouldn't you? Like you, you're upended a million different ways. She survived the war. Um, her mother was a seamstress, so she survived the war in Georgia because of that. Her her dad died really early on in the war. So he, um, you know, it was just three women looking after each other in Georgia. And then, you know, her daughters, one goes to one end of the world, the other one goes to the other end of the world, and then you end up stuck in a place where you don't speak the language. Um, she was a, a teacher as well, actually, and a, a principal. So she, I think she really struggled with the lack of control in this country, and she also was such a, a strong woman that kind of was at loggerheads with my dad, and they actually didn't speak in the house for 15 years, like literally not a word to each other. That's the way that they, like... <laughs> because they didn't get along. And then oh I know, but grandma got dementia. So later on in her life, she started losing her memory and kind of um, softening, I suppose, because of that. And one day we were having dinner and she asked dad to pass the salt. And this is like after 15 years and dad like looked at us. We all kind of looked at each other with kind of like trying not to. And he said, here you go. And after that, she spoke to him like nothing had ever happened for the next, for as long as she lived. Wow. So, yeah. How did I get onto that? We were talking about repression. Yes. So, repression. Yes. So, when she passed away, my mum was on a cruise. So, my parents were away. My brother was interstate. And I was the one that was in charge of helping organize the funeral, you know, doing all of that stuff. Also, just recognizing that she was, you know, kind of honoring as she was fading away, like I saw her a few days before she passed and I said to her, I hope you know that we all love you. And she was like, oh, sunshine in Russian, you know, um, I know. Like she was very lucid in that moment. It was like just a really beautiful, you know, all this stuff. There is no way that that the Alice who hadn't done the work would have been able to have those kind of moments. And I really felt like I had a, a, an opportunity to help support my entire family through the grief of of her passing and it was, um, yeah, it was, I think 
I, I was just really actively expressing the whole time. And I guess it helps that I don't feel like, I don't know. I don't know why I've, I feel so free with it all. But, yeah, I'm pretty vocal now. <laughs> yeah. What does actively expressing mean? Actively expressing means that if I'm feeling agitated in some way, if, if, if there's a big feeling coming up, and it's probably also Hazel, you know, that's it. So for the last two and a half years, and even before she was born, we were reading up on what it means to be an active parent, you know, a conscious, you know, conscious parenting, simplicity parenting, it doesn't matter what you call it, um, attachment parenting, all of it really is pushing you to recognise that your child's agency and your child's feelings and help support them with that. But part of becoming a parent, I think, also is about coming to terms with your own inner child and your own childhood. So, you know, those big feelings that we were never taught to express, like I see the way that my parents were with Hazy when she was first crying and they'd be like, oh, just distract her out of it. And it's like, no, honour the feelings. Let her cry and say, I see you, I hear you. And the more that I said that to her, the more I realised that I need to say that to myself and I need to say that to the adults in my life as much as I do to this, you know, little little Pisha that, that's, that's growing up with these big emotions. She's an Aries, so she's like full of feelings. It's great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have big feelings too. Yeah, there's there's something and it's good and <laughs> yeah. they can be gifts, can't they, when they you know how to name them and tame mm-hmm. them and, and understand them and you understand yourself so much more. Mm-hmm. And I think parenting has a way of shining a big mirror onto all of the stuff that you haven't dealt with, mm-hmm. all the good stuff and all of the the not so good stuff. Mm. It's um it's really interesting. Do you think your parenting Hazel um in a particular way because of the way you were raised? Yes. I think that there are definitely elements of a um I want her to have a Russian heritage. Um you know, she she only really listens to one Australian or one English speaking band, Diver City, and the rest of it is Russian cut like Russian songs. Um, I speak to her in Russian as well. I think there's a culture, like there's a culturedness to a Russian upbringing and a like a tiger parent vibe that I definitely would like to impart on her. But it's also on the flippo, there are things that I do because of the way that I was parented, like not despite, but because of, I do them differently. So like honouring her feelings and not repressing them and like just being considerate of my language, just making different choices with my language. And also maybe when the time comes, maybe I'll just kind of temper my um, pushing of her because I think my um, sometimes my parents pushed me too much and it meant that I rebelled by saying, well, I'm just not going to try. I don't want that for Hazel. Mm. So you want her to be ambitious but in touch with herself and her own boundaries and and all of those things. That's right. Intrinsic motivators. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a hard balance, isn't it, to Mm -hmm. know how far to push because I also sometimes think going through really hard stuff, you know, being annoying at school or being different (laughs) or and, and much more, you know, difficult traumas actually also make you really cool as a person. A hundred percent. And grow you as a person. 
Yeah, so many of my favourite friends, yeah. Yeah, have been through yeah. that and you don't want your kids to suffer mm-hmm. but also you want them to be interesting people. So I still don't know where I sit with that. I find that really challenging. Well, I, I just think that it's you can only control what you can control, right? So you can help to build up their resilience and, and help to encourage them to have strong intuition and, and all of those things. And I don't think you need to force them into difficult situations. I think the difficult situations will come no matter what. And you're role modeling all the time how to be an interesting person, right? Just having interesting conversations and being interested in others. Some of my favorite friends are the ones that are interested in others, no matter what their area of expertise. They're like, oh, well, tell me more about that. You know, they're polymaths. And I think that's that's the way to be cool as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Be cool with be What's cool a polymath? Um, people that love, you know, acquiring knowledge, acquiring different, yeah, rooms to their mind palace, not just sticking to one level of exp- or area of expertise. Mm. So what do you think about womanhood and where are you kind of sitting now with your idea about being a woman in the, in the world of food? Have you come up a, against, I know you mentioned it briefly before, difficult times with that, being a woman in that role? I think food naturally, particularly food media, has a pretty strong female influence. Like there's lots of, and a, and a real sorority. Um, some of my best friends are fellow food writers or, you know, people within the media, the food media and cooks and chefs. But I definitely think that unfortunately there is that hangover. Can you hear Leo, my big dog that's like making funny yeah. noises? He's probably, yeah, I love it. That's just some Atmos. Um, so... What I will say is that there have there have been times where I've experienced sexism in the sense of that boys club kind of bravado, you know, ribbing. And it's really shit. But I called it out. Like I had a I had a I was at a food festival and I was taking a photo with a couple of chefs, um, with, you know, three chefs, and I was I bent down just before the photo was taken to do up my shoelace and one of them said, Hey, while you're down there. And I got back up and I looked him, right? I looked him straight in the face and I pointed my finger in his face and I said, don't you talk to me like that. It was, you should have seen his face. You, I might have said you shut your mouth. It was, it was good. Um, And I think, again, it's about being like present and backing yourself, right? But that's because I felt like I was powerful enough to be able to turn around and say that. I was food editor at the time. It was just like, like I I could swear so many. But here's the thing, Claire, is I will never forget that. And I I am an elephant. And if you wrong me, you better believe (laughs) that it will come back to bite you forever. So there have been times when (laughs) then I've been asked to do things with that person and I've just said no. You know what I mean? So I really think that the way that yeah. we stamp that out is that we stop giving these people chances. And I think that comes obviously through having a seat at the table and that's probably part of my ambition is I really do want to raise other, you know, people up that might not have those opportunities before with that sort of very white bread boys club that it used to be, but it's not that anymore. I really think, you know, there's some wonderful diverse voices and and honouring of of otherness and, you know, in the best possible ways. So that can only come if we continue to amplify those stories rather than the ones that can get in the bin. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
But actually, um, I think because I was a teacher of year eight boys and a lot of, not a lot of chefs, but some chefs behave like year eight boys, that's probably why I have the presence of mind to be able to just give them my teacher voice or, you know, clap back. But I would hate to think what a young woman, you know, just starting out might experience in, in those circumstances where she doesn't feel like she can clap back. You know, if you're listening and you don't feel like you can clap back, you sure as shit can. You can and you should and we will back you. Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely. I think it's giving, it's almost like I remember growing up with this feeling like I needed permission to do things mm. or to say things. Um, and that's not true. You give yourself the permission. No. And obviously that's, that's to right. do the level of privilege, as you said. But, I, I, yeah, I do think the more, like with kids when you're teaching, if there's a consequence, or sometimes they just don't even realise it. I think I've worked with a lot of comedians. I don't even think they've known what they've said around me and I've mm. you know and it's sailed sailed away on the seas and I've just had to let it let it go and now I think to myself at, at 35 not nah, not doing that anymore calling mm. that out a mm. lot more even yeah. I remember I went to a conference in like overseas in Europe and one of the very senior sort of speakers on the panel I was getting my mic up, put on my ear and then mm. tucked into my back pocket. So I had my arms above my head like this and I must have had a hip out because they were tucking the mic pack in. And this mm. guy said, ooh, you can stay like that to me. And he would have been in his 50s. I know, this like senior oh. guy. And I knew that I had to walk out on that stage after him because he was about to, you know, introduce me to the crowd. And what was I going to do? Say, uh, well, maybe I should have, but at the time, you know, I was very unknown in that podcasting space and I just had to kind of go, oh, okay, suck it up and here I go and give him a, a smile. What do you and- do? Yeah, but you don't, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had another situation now that you mention it where I had an older man say, belittle me, uh, like, you know, what are you doing after this? Oh, well, you know, when you don't have a job sort of thing, when he was the one that was in the wrong. And it was just like, that's cool. Again, it's going into my mind palace in my little spite room and <laughs> you are dead to me, like, honestly. So, yeah, I, I'm assuming that, that that gentleman is dead to you, Claire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct, yeah. exactly. And one day, like as we believe, the world comes right. full circle, things happen for 100%. a reason, you just never know. Got to be yeah. respectful and, you know, you get out what you put in, I guess, in the end. You're mm-hmm. saying that, what advice do you have for people who are starting out in the media kind of space? What have you learned mm. through your years of, of working in that space now? Put yourself in the room, um, whether that be through unpaid, you know, um, internship, you know, seek someone out that you would like to assist or that you'd like to shadow whatever it takes, um, that is valuable because that's going to give you some flying hours and some cred. And you just never know what opportunities come when you're actually in the equation. And as you said, you know, who gives you permission? You give you permission. You can email whoever the heck you want and say, hey, listen, I've been a great admirer of your work and yada, yada. Sometimes I get emails like that and I just do not have the headspace to give them time and space and energy of mine, sometimes I'm like, that is exactly what I need. And I will do everything in my power to, you know, help them. And um, so I think, yeah, it's kind of just 
even if you want to hedge your bets and email a few people, just don't copy and paste because, God, like you can tell when it's to you and when it's just like a Gennaro. <laughs> I'm a strong admirer of your work as a <laughs> sort of slash, you know, slash, slash. <laughs> and it's somewhere in the email they call you the wrong name. Don't do that. Just be really careful. <laughs> so, yes, that. Uh, I would also say do the work from the other end. So I mentioned my, you know, my breath coach. I started going to see her because I was going to events. I kept losing my voice and it's because I was feeling the imposter syndrome and I was feeling like I had to shout, you know, but actually I wasn't like talking loudly, but the shouty bits of my voice box and um, diaphragm were in play. And so she taught me to find my voice much deeper and project it from a different place and find my resonance. So that has meant that that resonance has led to opportunities to use my voice in other ways. So, okay, here's, here's a, here's a good tip. So you either do things for love or you do them for money. And if you really love it, then you'll do it for much less than if you were to do it when you don't, didn't really love it, but the money was there. So just decide for yourself, like what your true goal is. Does this contribute to your final destination? If so, then probably it could be a different rate to whatever. And mm. read books, listen to podcasts, be a polymath. That's it. You're already there. You're listening mm. to this podcast. Collect it like a bower bird. Collect oh, it. yes, collect it like a yes. bower bird. Yes, 100%. Just beep, 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 beep. You never know when it will come in handy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So what would you eat for someone who is feeling highly stressed with children at home at the moment and trying to homeschool and work and do all the things and it's a very stressful time? What do you recommend people eat at the moment while they're stuck in their houses? I know that's, that's like a world of food. It's asking yeah. you to choose between children probably. But. It is. Um, I would eat big batches of soup, so big, you know, vegetables in general, um, but I make lots of big batches of stuff like roasted vegetables that can then be put through pastas, salads, you know, frittatas, um, borscht or some other kind of vegetable soup that's always in the fridge so that if I'm at my desk and, oh, crap, it's dinner time, <laughs> at least there's something there. And always, you know, stock your pantry well, have little flavour bombs and you know, power ingredients in there that can really kind of boost whatever it is that you're serving. But really the thing that's going to help to mitigate your stress is vegetables, <laughs> plants, eat more plants. Mm. And whether they're frozen or whether they're fresh or whether they're roasted or whatever, that's, I really think that's going to get you through. And cheese. Yeah. Oh God, cheese. I know. <laughs> Don't we all love some uh, cheese? Oh man. Oh my God. Yes. Um, Yes. Why do, Why is it that vegetables do that? Because well, I know you love vegetables. In praise of veggies, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you reminded me. Um, you know, being a woman in food, the other thing that I do want to say is that we as women have the hearth inside our souls, inside our hearts, right? Like deep. And the hearth of the home is the kitchen. If you look at all of mythology across time, it's the woman that is that kind of keeper of right? And we can reclaim that by spending that time in the kitchen. And I think one of the worst thing that, things that's happened for women in the industrial age is the lie that we've been told that it's more convenient to get takeaway food or, you know, take get let mum off the hook by buying this bucket of chicken or whatever it is, when actually that time is meditation, it is 
true nourishment, not just for your family, but also for yourself and your, your soul. Um, and it's more cost effective and it's definitely something that we naturally have. So unfortunately, that distinction between cook and chef, you know, the woman tends to be cook, the man with the tall white hat, you know, would prefer to be called chef. Fob that off. Who cares what the title is? We all are harnessing the power of the elements to change the state and the flavor of an ingredient. And why vegetables? For exactly the same reason, because Mother Nature has put those plants on this planet to nourish us. And I know that's like so human-centric and whatever, whatever you need to believe. But the point is that across all diets, the, the, the only thing really that's consistent is that it's plant-forward. So if there's one thing that you can do for yourself, it's eat more vegetables, eat more fruits. Um, all of that food is full of vibration and it's going to nourish you, um, you know, the, the, the closer it is to being picked. So if you can grow your own, awesome. That's going to give you the, the energy and the power to be able to do more in your life. And when I'm feeling sluggish, when I'm feeling flat, uh, beyond the sunflower seeds, it's green stuff that I reach for. It's, you know, high um, antioxidant rich, you know, it might be berries or beetroot or whatever it is. I definitely, that's another reason why I've got that pot of soup in my fridge, because at least I know that there are eight vegetables inside that bowl that every single one of them is doing me good. So that's great. Um, now back to your question, Claire, I've forgotten what it is. (laughs) What was it? I just didn't want to like get up. I was like, and one more thing. But what what was your final question? You've got one more. What do I eat? What do I eat? What was it? it? I answered it. it. And you answered it. You did really well. And it was the Lord. Yeah, good. And and yogurt. Um, you know, I really like fermented foods. I've got heaps of fermented, pickled, preserved things in our fridge and pantry. Um, because again, you know, all of those ancient foods uh with all that lovely gut bacteria, you know, the 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 bacteria that then populates your gut garden is really beneficial too. So yeah, up those. Because that really does, I was watching something about the science of the gut and mm. how that really does affect the way we think. Oh, yes. Isn't it? It's, it's, yes. It's like a second brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, that blew me away, yeah. that level of gut bacteria. Talk, talk me through, I know you have. You must have to go and we've been <laughs> talking for so long. I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Um, but what's a gut garden? I oh, man. that phrase. Well, if you think about it, so your gut flora there, there can be thousands, Nick will be like, no, it was millions, but like there are so many different gut microbes that can be living in your gut. And if you think about it like a garden, so you can't fully control it, but you can help to plant good seeds of good gut bacteria, you know, good bacteria so that they can populate the gut and keep it in a healthy state. Because otherwise what happens is that your gut gets overrun by you know, people might know of, you know, candida or, you know, some of that bacteria that, that can be quite um, detrimental to not only your inner health, your your bits, but also, as you say, to your brain. And your your um, gut can also, especially with on candida, this is your gut on candida, it can really crave sugar. So another thing that you can really do is if you get that under control, then you won't crave those sugary kind of high, high energy, but boom, you know, gone, low return yeah, foods. High, little, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That big tr- peak and then peak and trough, bottom out and, and you feel exactly. even worse than That's you right. did before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Alice. <laughs> that was so valuable and what so inspiring. And gosh, you're great. Delightful. You're, you're a great interviewer. Oh. Um, I, I shared, I overshared a lot. So thank you for giving me the space to do that. <laughs> oh no, it was a joy. Gosh, your life is interesting. There's so many things to that. I just, and thank you for all the work you're doing. I think you're it's welcome. really inspiring and energizing for people and hopefully when we get out of this pandemic you can get back to those big crowds too i would love that thank you very much likewise (laughs) brilliant you've been listening to a podcast with alice zaslavsky and with me claire tonti it's been wonderful to have you here if you love this episode please rate review and subscribe for us it makes so much difference and if you loved it just share it with a friend We would so love you to do that. It's the only way I find podcasts, I reckon, just from someone else sending it along. So you can do that by just clicking up the top and there's a little link for sharing up there. I have interviews back in the feed with people like Claire Bowditch and Jamila Rizvi, Sammy P, the comedian, Jess Perkins, Triple J, radio presenter, and lots of other wonderful humans who have lots of advice and stories to share. For more from Alice, you can head to aliceinframes.com where links to her wonderful books In Praise of Veg and Alice's Food A to Z can be found, as well as all her other work. And trust me, you'll be wanting to check out all of her work and follow her on Instagram where she shares about many wonderful things, including her incredible pink coffee machine. It's worth going over there just to view that thing. It is a thing of beauty. All right, that's it from me this week. Thank you, as always, to the wonderful Raw Collings for editing this week's episode and sending so much love to you out there. And bloody go and eat some vegetables. That's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go make some vegetable soup. The way to help our heads and our hearts, I think, is through our stomachs. Thank you so much to Alice. Till next week, bye. Bye.